Welcome to False Bottom Girls, a podcast about the wonderful yet sometimes confusing world of beer and brewing. Hi, I'm Rachel Hudson, owner of Pilot Brewing and an Advanced Cicerone. Hi, I'm Jen Blair, sensory expert, home brewer, and Advanced Cicerone. I will tell you that I love barley and malt so much that when we get finished with this call, I am sending an email to my tattoo artist about the um, the Violetta two row tattoo I want to get, which I've already oh. talked to her about it like a couple of years ago. And I keep thinking like, yeah, I really need to do that. Uh, but she's moving to actually to North Carolina at the end of March. So I'm like, okay, well, if I want her to do it, like now's, now's the time. Mm-hmm. But I have all of these pictures. I'm so excited. So if you see me in real life, well, Rachel, you will see me in real life. <laughs> you see this tattoo, like you heard that this was the plan. So now you know that I got it. And also like I had $200 and nobody stopped me from getting another tattoo. <laughs> <laughs> Not but my I, fault. No one yeah, stopped me. I've been thinking for like for years that I want this tattoo. And now it's like, oh, well, she's leaving. So if I want it, I need to get it. But yeah, it's going to be Violetta because that is a southeastern a variety that can be grown in southeastern America, which is where I am. And um, also welcome. This is False Bottom Girls. <laughs> it's a good, and it's a good intro. This is, yeah, it's Tattoo Corner. Yeah. <laughs> and Rachel, you can get a tattoo. I, I don't I'm not, I don't know. <laughs> you can get a temporary tattoo. They've got some really nice ones. They have you seen this like temporary tattoo thing that will like last for like a year or so Mm -hmm. that looks kind of intense kind of cool (laughs) kind of like intrigues me a little bit i'm like so it will go away so it won't be with me forever right and it does also like that i kind of like that yeah it seems like you could probably if it goes away if like you just really didn't like it you could probably make it go away sooner true and if you can't, it will go away. Well, I guess you could. I mean, there's right. a way to remove real tattoos. But yeah. Um, kind of. So like yeah. two of my tattoos are covering up two other tattoos. <laughs> that <laughs> That's one method. Yeah. Because surprise, <laughs> um, like 32-year-old Jen did not like the tattoo that 18-year-old Jen got. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I was going through the like laser removal and it, it worked to a point. But then I talked to other people who have gone through it and they're like, it's it probably won't ever completely go away and, or yeah. you might end up with just scar tissue. Yeah. So the tattoo is still there. So once it got faded enough, I just got covered up with something else. Yeah. There you go. So yeah. There's always I have, that. Yeah. Two tattoos covering up two other tattoos. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's a good workaround for needing, for not liking something anymore. Right. Yeah, exactly. I don't. I, I just hate. Uh, I know. I know that people. Some people don't think it's very painful when you get used to it or whatever. But oh, I just don't want to do it. Like I can't even bring myself to. This sounds bad. I want to donate blood. I really do. But I can't sit there with a needle in my arm for thirty minutes. I can't do it. Like I will pass out. <laughs> yeah, I will. And then they'll, it pop, is a very then they'll different... put the blood back in me. It will be, right. all be for nothing. It is a very different needle size. Or ah. donating blood, but I, I hear you. It's making my arm hurt just talking about it. Although I will say as somebody who donates blood, I would, I had one friend who we would go donate blood together. Like every six weeks, this was like our, you know, like our date night is we would go <laughs> donate blood and then we would go get dinner. So we knew like when we got the reminder that it was time to donate again, that was just something that we would do, but we would try to like race That's each so other nice. to see who could fill oh, up God, the bag. Awful. <laughs> Which, as somebody who drinks a lot of water, I could fill it up way quick. And she's always just uh, like, she drinks water and I drink soda. So, like, mine is just like this thick sludge that's just like <laughs> coming out of my arm. But, yeah, we would be like, okay, go. And I you could, I can fill a bag in, like, five, six minutes. It doesn't have oh, to be 30 minutes. Oh, no. Yeah, man, you just Jeff, drink. Jeff went, Jeff went too fast one time, like, 15 minutes. And he passed out. And they had to put the blood back in him. <laughs> that's the story he told me <laughs> yeah so uh, uh but we're not here to talk about that today we're not <laughs> at all actually it has like, nothing to yeah. do with so we were talking about <laughs> tattoos with the tattoo that i'm going to get but True, yes we are how, talking about my this, personal this is how add works right <laughs> <laughs> this is like do you remember the family circus cartoons or um comics 
where it would be like come to dinner and like the kids like like the dotted line of like going up this tree and jumping over and all this stuff like that's what we get, to the topic we get there. <laughs> yeah we'll get there we'll get there yeah. and this is the kind of quality programming you demand you know <laughs> but yes Today we're talking about barley and malt, which is my favorite ingredient in beer, not just because I worked in craft malt for several years, but just because <laughs> I think it's really cool. And I don't think it gets enough, gets enough attention and it does so much more for beer than anything else except for water and yeast. <laughs> Take that. That's a shot across Take the bow at hops. <laughs> everybody thinks hops is so sexy and everybody wants to talk about which hop they love the most but listen yeah no you're you're right and you know what it comes down to the same with food the better quality all your ingredients the better quality your beer is going to be so this is all around you want all quality hops you don't want aged stale hops you want quality barley you want nice filtered clean add your minerals backed in watered you want healthy yeast right so right Spoiler alert, those are the four ingredients of beer. <laughs> there we go. We brought it back. We weren't recording when we were having this discussion, but Rachel and I were talking about the need to always give context to things, which actually started because I couldn't remember if we had done any episodes like on just malt or yeah. even on just hops. Like I think we've talked about like bitterness, but yeah, but we've we're as you know, we're going through the, the catalog. Yeah, it's like well, we didn't tell you, we didn't, <laughs> we didn't explain the ABCs to you guys. Right. And that is our bad. We just assumed you knew it. And that is why we haven't passed our master Cicerone test yet, because that is how <laughs> we write our essays. You're like, right. you're like right. you are master Cicerone grading this test. You know that one plus one equals two. Right. <laughs> right. But yes, but I think most bad. people do. Probably no. if you're listening to this, but we do owe it to everyone to give that context of Absolutely. there's four ingredients in beer. This is one of the ones we're talking about. And today. of course, if you want to become an educator in beer or take the Cicerone test or BJCP testing, even this is all really important, basic stuff that is just going to get you the points that you need. Right. And everybody's to- always doing hop rubs and like rubbing up on hops and everything, but nobody's taking the time to yeah. taste their malt. Yeah. Or do hot steeps and learn how different oh, malt can actually be. We could do a whole episode on doing hop steeps. Oh my God. It's like one of my favorite things. And, and we should be doing more hop steeps. Everyone as a collective. Yes, I will say. And we may get into like how to do the hot steep a, a little bit. Yeah, but we can. I, and I'll say this probably at least once more because I'll forget that I said it just now. But one of the things I love about doing hot steeps is I will go into, let's say I used to do this a lot with homebrew clubs where I would go in and do malt sensory and I would just pick like, okay, we're going to do three hot steeps and it would be Mm -hmm. a theme. I had never done it before, but I knew that it was going to be a good experience for everybody. Oh yeah. It was. So like I've done them before with base malts and have gone in with, you know, American Pilsner, Belgian Pilsner, German Pilsner and done a hot steep. And once people take the time to like consider how different all of those are, it really starts to click with people that, oh, okay, so I don't have to just use Rar 2 Row. Yes. I could use Maris Otter. I could use Violetta. I could use yep. all of these different things. And once you get to that level, I love it so much because as a home brewer, that's something I think about is what kind of flavor am I going for? Mm-hmm. And particularly with, you know, and I'm, we're both in the American Southeast, which is not a traditional barley growing area, but it is growing and craft malt is growing in mm-hmm. um, everywhere. But like, particularly within the Southeast, you know, 15 years ago, they, and actually even like 10 years ago, people wanted to start growing barley for malting in the Southeast. And they were told that will never happen. That yeah. can't that's not possible. Yeah. And just this last year, Virginia Tech released the first variety that has been bred specifically for the Southeastern United States. Yeah. That's, and that's awesome. That's 10 years. You yeah. Know? So it's like the, it's going to be in 10 years, it's going to be 10 years anyway. So why not try it? And like, and there's, I, a, and there's malt houses in uh, North Carolina. There's like three mm-hmm. and I can't really speak for two of them because I don't know for sure, but I know one 
uses malt or barley grown at least within 50 to 100 miles of their location. Mm -hmm. And that's that's cool like that. You're right. That has not been able to happen. Um, But also quick side note, like we're talking about basically making a malt tea. Just to clarify what mm-hmm. we're talking when we say steep, I just want to throw that out there. Um, we're like grinding the the barley. We're kind of making a mini. Yeah, you make a mini mash, mini mash, basically that you filter and taste the wort. Right. So that's what we're talking about when we say malt. And it, you get so it's way better than just eating the malt. Mm-hmm. Um, you get so much more character of what the malt's going to actually provide. You just eat the malt. You're just getting this grainy husky barley you're not getting the actual flavor of what it's going to give you in in your wort exactly so there is a you know if 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 every malt salesperson came in and was like here's a bunch of steeps which i know would be very hard to do i'm like (laughs) because but like i it would be so much more better of experience than them just dropping off like one ounce samples of barley of different things that i can't really do anything with Right. Or did, I mean, I guess I could make my own steep, but let's be honest at the end of the day, I'm not going to do that. I don't have time. Right. Like, I have a, right. I have a good system going on with what I go now. And as a brewer, busy one and a business owner, it's hard to get us to break our systems and try something new, you know, unless right. you go about it the right way. So all that to say, <laughs> we will start talking about our topic. Yes. Now. Well, I will say one more thing. <laughs> yeah about making hot steeps and you're correct that it is usually when I when I like show people this is what I'm talking about they're like oh it's a malt tea and yes. I should malt tea tea made of malt not malty yes, yes. Um, it is a malty malt <laughs> yes. tea I guess um, and if you've been listening to this or if you know me in person you know how much I fucking hate when people describe malt flavor as malty yes um, because we're they probably don't malt. describe tea. hops as hoppy yeah um so yeah I've got a lot of uh like middle child aggression about about the way people talk about malt versus hops. But a few months ago, Lindsay Barr from Draft Lab, um, they have a fantastic newsletter. So if you're not already signed up for it, sign up for it. But she had reached out to say, hey, like what I'm asking people in the industry, what is like the most useful thing as a sensory person that you have? And my answer was my hot steep kit. Mm-hmm. And that was something that after I left, so I used to be the executive director of the Craft Maltsters Guild. And when I left the guild, you know, all of the, like all of my hot steep supplies went to the new executive director. So I went out personally and purchased everything I need to do my own hot steeps. Mm-hmm. And it is, you know, like I was thinking through like, okay, well, what do I have? And I'm like, really, it's my hot steep kit. Like I just have it in a box. I grab it and can do, uh, you know, hot steeps left and right mm-hmm. if you need it. And that's, for me, that's the most helpful thing that I have, you know, kind of in my arsenal, a sensory stuff. And I've got a lot of like dumb sensory stuff, but I've got a lot of good stuff too. But the malt kit is. Top-notch. I have the malt kit because you taught me how to do steeps yeah. and now I have a malt kit for it. Right. Because you got to keep all that separate. You can't be mixing in all the brewing stuff because you right. got it. You don't want anything to get used up you got to keep it nice and clean yes i hear you it sits on top of my cooler in a box it doesn't get touched i'm like these are my pictures these are not your pictures brewers (laughs) my pictures those are the ones i take to when i help you with testing yes (laughs) (laughs) those are your pictures too right (laughs) so we can probably start talking about our topic yeah yeah if you're still listening (laughs) you're still here (laughs) let's talk about barley Yes. So we're talking about barley because it's the most common grain used for brewing. And there's a couple of reasons for that. The first is that barley has a large amount of starch that's going to convert to fermentable sugars that will be food for the yeast later. And barley also has, most of it has a husk that's going to provide that that natural filter during mashing. And we have done a couple of episodes on what the brewing process is. So if the concept of mashing is new to you, you can go back and check out those episodes where we talk through it. And actually our next episode will be more about mashing. Mm -hmm. So yeah, be sure to catch that one. Yeah, but one of the things that I found, and we've discussed this on the podcast, is when you're trying to discuss like the brewing process or how, you know, how all of the ingredients come together in the process, it can be kind of like hearing somebody like describe a dream because it's like, okay, but no, do you wait? Do you remember in the beginning when I said that 
barley had starch that would be fermentable sugars for the yeast. Now you're not really going to worry about that, but remember that because at the end we'll come back to it. You know, it's like everything works together. Yeah. But it works together in different ways at different times to make this finished product. So it can be kind of difficult if you're not used to talking about brewing or if this is new information for you, it can be kind of difficult to conceptualize because it's not like, okay, you add the barley and mm-hmm. then you add the water and yeah. then you add the yeast, you know, or whatever. And like, and then it's all of these like separate discrete steps where each thing does one thing. It's not like that. Everything does multiple things and they all combine in different ways for different results. Uh, so that's, I, and I realize now as I'm saying this, that I am also describing this, like me trying to describe a dream where I'm trying to describe <laughs> the brewing process. But I, I do find like when you start out with talking about barley, you do have to be like, okay, so just hold that thought in your head for a little bit and trust me that we'll get back to it. Yeah. It's important to, rem- it's, it's one big picture. Right. You just got to remember that. Exactly. Yeah. And that's something that I think even now I continue to make connections. And we talked about this, like in our foam episode, you know, you've got the, uh, the malt proteins that hang out with the, the um, hop bitterness. Like, yeah, <laughs> it totally lost it. <laughs> but you have all of these things that, you know, are working together that are just like, okay, let's link arms. We're in this together. So there you go. I lost my train of thought with that. <laughs> so back to barley. Uh, barley can be for brewing. Barley can be two row or six row, kind of. We'll talk about six row in a second. Um, two row barley is typically used in all malt beer. So you might hear somebody talk about an all malt beer or an adjunct beer. With exactly. all malt, you're using all malt. Exactly. You're not 100% using malt. No corn, no rice, no adjuncts. Right. Exactly. Um, and six row barley was historically used in adjunct beers because coming over from, you know, Germany, Bohemia, the two row barley didn't grow very well, particularly someplace like around Missouri, Illinois, where Anheuser-Busch is located in St. Louis. What would grow was six row barley. So they would use that instead because that's that's what they had, right? Mm-hmm. They were working exactly. with what they had. And with the six row barley, it has a much higher protein content. So they would have to kind of cut that protein content down, which is where the corn and the rice comes in to try, you know, to, to exactly. be able to, you can use the six row barley, but you have to make adjustments for it that you don't have to make if you're using two row. Mm-hmm. But um, six row barley is really, really rare. It's becoming increasingly rare. And a few years ago, the American Malting Barley Association, AMBA, they put out a list every year of like approved barley varieties um, that have like gone through their process and have the AMBA stamp of approval. These are the, you know, the approved. And that doesn't mean that they're like, because there's some varieties that are on that list, like nobody uses because they're famously hard to work with, or they don't give good results, but you know, they've passed. And like, and you can decide from there if you want to use that variety or not, but I think it was 2018 or 2019, AMBA decided that they weren't going to approve any more six row barley varieties, which was really a result of nobody making, trying to breed new varieties of six row, because now you have two row, now we have access to, you know, global markets and more information on where we can grow this and more technology that allows us to grow it in different areas. So two row malt, has gotten our two row barley, you know, like Coors, um, Anheuser-Busch, they all own several of their own like proprietary varieties mm-hmm. that is two row barley that specifically is bred to have a higher protein content, you know, to do what six row used to do because we have the technology now where, yeah. you know, pre-prohibition, that technology wasn't there. Um, and, you know, up until probably like the 70s, it was still six row was being used because that's what we could grow. That was what was available. But they're called that because if you look down at the top of the barley, you can see that there's two rows of barley kernels with two row barley. And with six row, if you look down, there's six row. And you can actually see if you've got a sample of two row and a sample of six row side by side, you can tell which one is two row and which one is six yeah. row 
because the chiro barley will have it really looks flat kernels. almost yeah the and kind of twisted yeah. yeah well the six it, row looks in the twisted. six row the six row looks like uh it has kernels coming out on all sides mm-hmm. and going up and like twisted like you're yes. saying yeah that's the a good row kind of looks like uh like it's laying down flat right yeah two and, rows on its back or something right and so that's a also a good visualization to have because your two row barley is going to have bigger kernels which means more starch it's going to have a lower protein content and it's going to have an adequate level of enzymes that will be helpful in the mash which we'll talk more about in our next episode uh, so that's the other thing with two row is that you you have an adequate it does it gets the job done mm-hmm. enzyme wise with six row, it has much higher enzymes, but you have to use something like corn or rice to cut that protein content down. Uh, so it's, you know, it's a give and take for that. But, you know, really six row barley is going to be something that probably in like 20 years, it might be a historical footnote somewhere, but we won't be talking about two row and six row. It'll just be like two row barley is what, we, what use. we use. This is and interesting. Six row is this thing that existed yeah. once that didn't need to exist anymore. Um, and you like, you could still, people may still grow six row for like feed. So barley isn't only grown for beer, which is an interesting counterpoint to hops. And I promise I'm not hating on hops, but hops are only used in beer. Like that's the industry. There's no place else for hops to go. So there is a fair amount of research with hops companies and how else can we apply hops? Because if there's no beer, then there's no need for hops, but hops are, only used for brewing you yeah. know and it's not like barley is used in baking and cattle feed in all these other it has all of these other uses well so you do see some things kind of like popping up like you see these beer spas where you can do like these different hot baths and all this is going to be a small use like this is not a mass production right. use of anything like hop soaps hop shampoos like which as a beer person i don't want to use a hop shampoo no i, I just feel it just i, I shower myself in beer enough yeah. <laughs> yeah. which i actually did so okay here's a really quick diversion that i'm not necessarily proud of but proud enough to tell everybody about <laughs> who's listening to this um last night i was at elsewhere brewing which is a brewery in atlanta it's one of my favorites and we got some beer to go and as we were walking out one of the they use like the recyclable pack techs and one of the beers fell out and like fell on the ground. And so like picked it up, put it back and it fell out again. And so it had like a little, because we were just like, oh no, like this is, this is going to explode or something. And I see like a little pinhole of beer coming out of it. So oh no. I I think I had only had one beer at this point, but I was like, oh, I will just shotgun <laughs> this. <laughs> Eight and a half percent, sixteen ounce can of saison in oh, the God. parking lot. <laughs> Jesus, which I discovered very quickly that not only was the hole not big enough to actually be able to shotgun, yeah. but the beer had been <laughs> dropped on the ground twice. So when I opened it, it was just foaming everywhere, <laughs> uh, which did not stop me from. I did not shotgun it, but I like I did chug it pretty quick um, <laughs> because I was also like in my rule following mind was like. Oh, there's going to be police and they're going to arrest me for having an open container in this parking lot. And then I'm going to have like a rap sheet and all of this stuff. So I was like, okay, I've got to drink it quick. <sighs> like, who's you that? probably could who's have that? just taken it back to the bar. <laughs> I know. I, you know. A new one. <laughs> I know I could have, but I like how you took one for the team. Yeah. Yeah. Like, no, like, I like this brewery. Boom. Yeah. <laughs> I, do like um, I have also, that was the, third beer in my life I've ever tried to shotgun oh good Uh, so yeah most of the time it's like Amstel light is what gets shotgunned but yeah there was just like dots and splashes of beer on the pavement that I was like you can follow this storyline of what happened like here's when it started to leak here's the spot where I thought I could shotgun it and here's when I ran into the grass because beer was getting everywhere and yeah I was like you can there's a you can follow this storyline pretty clearly based <laughs> on the amount of beer spilled in the parking lot. Oh, that's just gin. Yeah. Listen, <laughs> I'm nothing if not a fun time. <laughs> but, so back to barley and <laughs> six row barley specifically. So six row 
is like Rachel said, it's, it's all around the stock of the barley and it's much smaller because you have, it's the same, the same kind of stock, the same size, but instead of two kernels, you have six kernels yeah, all less crowded room. in yeah. and there's less room. So they're thinner, which means they have less starch. They have a higher protein content, which means they also have higher levels of enzymes. So like six row barley is very enzymatic. You can like anything you need, it's there, it's giving you more than you need, but you get an adequate amount from two row enough that it makes more sense, like economically to use two row. Mm -hmm. um, and if you need a higher protein two row to use a higher protein. Um, but historically it was used in adjunct beers. Um, so barley can also, we've got two row and six row, and then barley can further be divided into spring and winter. So spring barley is sown in the spring and harvested in the fall. It's the least cold tolerant. So one reason why barley has been so hard to grow someplace like the Southeast is that barley is a lot like us. Like it wants, it doesn't want to be hot at night. It, mm -hmm. you know, it wants a nice cool night and you don't get that many that many of those in the southeast. Not the same way you do someplace like Colorado, Idaho, Montana, North yeah. Dakota. Those are all like the biggest barley growing states. So if you think about what their springs look like, spring summer compared to spring summer somewhere like North Carolina, they're very different. They're going to be very cool. Yeah. They're not going to be very humid. Um, so both two row and six row can be spring barley, and most. In North America, most of the efforts, the breeding efforts have been on spring barley because going back to historically, who's who were the biggest buyers of barley is going to be the industrial like macro brewers. And they they're going to be located, you know, someplace where you can grow all of this barley fairly easily. So most of the research has been on how do we make spring two row barley specifically for adjunct beers. And then, but you can also have winter barley. So winter is sown in the fall and harvested in the spring. And this is what in the Southeast and in other non-traditional barley growing areas, most of it's going to be winter two row barley. And that's because it's going to germinate before winter. So it's kind of switched. If you think about what, you know, October through April looks like in North Carolina versus mm -hmm. what October through April looks like in Montana right? It's, mm -hmm. it's much different. So it can germinate before winter. It will par partially grow in mild winters. And the, the yield of winter cereals is generally bigger than spring cereals. And so most European breeding efforts have been on winter barley, which also makes sense if you kind of think across, you know, someplace like like North Carolina going straight across, you know, you're hitting like France and places that have similar mild winters. And that there's also not as many, you know, like the macro loggers are very American based thing. They're everywhere now, but someplace like France, someplace like Belgium, they've been focused on making smaller batches of beer yeah. so they can focus on what well, we want winter and winter to row. And I took uh, an advanced class in craft malting technology a few years ago. And one of the instructors is Patrick Wavin, and he is from France. Um, he's the head of like the International Fermentation and Barley Malting Institute. Super, like super cool guy, but he will like go to the mat on French winter two row barley is the best in the world. <laughs> it's very, like he- I'm intrigued now. Yeah, you're just like, okay. Um, and the other thing that I love about him and we'll talk a little bit more about the malting process later, but one part of the malting process that a lot of maltsters have been told they need to do is bubbling CO2 uh, or bubbling oxygen up through their steep, um, not CO2, but oxygen. And he... To like drive off excess CO2 that's like stuck in the bottom or something? No, or it was... Just... I, I don't remember why they what the conventional Curious. wisdom was yeah. or why you wouldn't want to do that. But he was Jeez. like, no, you don't do that. Ah. You don't have to do that. And it was something like, even when he said that somebody raised his hand and was like, okay, but that, what you just said goes against everything yeah. that we've read. And like, that's a, that's kind of a major thing. Um, and, but, you know, he explained it 
of why you don't need to do that. But one of the things that he said was barley's not a fish. It doesn't need to breathe, but he's very French. So it's barley is not fish. <laughs> <laughs> and he like he would just say that over and over again. So like one of the other guys in the class and I were just like, this just tickles us every time he says barley he's not fish. <laughs> That's and, actually like, really I guarantee you if I saw that guy later, like if we, <laughs> like if he was like at CBC or something, we would both like immediately do that to each other. And just like giggle, <laughs> giggle, 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 giggle. Yeah, that's cool. Um, we are brewing a beer for CBC using French Pilsner malts. I assume it's two row. I will have to double check. Mm-hmm. I will, uh, I, uh, I think that's very funny. So we will find out. We will put it to the test. Right. We will have it. <laughs> we will have it at CBC. <laughs> we will determine it if it's the best in the world. Right. Right. And you can name it Barley's Not a Fish. Oh. In, in an homage. That's. To Dr. Patrick Boivin. That'd be so funny. <laughs> I mean, for like five or six people. Maybe, right. Like but you like, and me and whoever's listening to this, who's then at CBC yeah. and is drinking your beer would be <laughs> like, oh, here it is. Here's this story. Like I was just trying to learn about barley and malt and these two just kept telling dumb stories. I like that. <laughs> I like that. All right. So why do we malt? Why do we malt, Rachel? We malt because it modifies the barley kernel that it, it is breaking down this endosperm and this protein structure that gives us our available starch for what we need as brewers. So the malt house gets the barley. It's a very hard kernel. They put it through the germination process, the malting process, if you will, to basically make a mini mash, which I always like to refer to inside of the kernel. So it develops the required enzymes that it's need to produce fermentable sugars and other yeast nutrients. So if we didn't do the germination process, if we just took hard malt out of the field and cracked it, you know, now that I say that, I'm thinking. <laughs> I'm seeing work? this look of thinking. It would work if you, you can, you can mash raw malt, right? Like it would just maybe take a long time. You would need a lot more of it. Malt. Yeah. Yes. A lot more malt. Cause it's not achieve... modified. So. Right. Just right. like olden days. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, yeah. you would need a lot more um, because like I've, I remember seeing a presentation at Homebrew Con about how you can make a, now that I think about it, this was a really weird fucking presentation to get approved, but it was <laughs> how you could make a beer using like 100% like caramelized malt. Yeah. And it's Ooh. like, well, yeah, you can, but it's, why would you? Yeah. Why, like, why would you do that? And now no, exactly. that I think yeah. about that out loud, I'm just like, who would do this? Anyway, yeah. You wouldn't want a beer that was entirely caramel malt. Yeah. And it would, you would have to use a ton of it, which is a specialty malt. So it's more expensive and it would take a lot longer to ferment because you're not getting as much of the fermentable sugars in there. So yeah, it was just like, yeah, you could. Yeah. Why I was just going to, I was about to say, cause you're not going to be able to make the beer, but I guess you could eventually but we would get something we are modern now we have technology we like to do things faster and more efficient so that's why one of the reasons why we malt and we dry you know what germination process is basically taking this malt basically you know in in a summary simple way of saying getting it a little wet letting it start to start its growth process we're basically telling the malt to grow into barley and then it it gets barley into malt (laughs) Uh, sorry. <laughs> We're telling the, the barley. Yes. We're telling it to grow, to start its growing process. And, um, then once it does a little bit of that, um, it starts to break down the, you know, the enzymes that required that you need to get fermentable sugars. And once it does a little bit of that, it will grow this little acospear. And I'm sorry for jumping ahead on our outline and I just don't know it, but, uh, <laughs> but then we, uh, tell it to stop and, that is, I just, you know, when I said the word germination, I wanted to explain it. So that right. is basically what germination is. And we dry this germinated malt into the finish or the barley into the finished malt to develop color and flavor instability. So, right. um, so let's talk about the steps in the malting process now. 
Um, and this is, again, this is one of those topics that it's, there are so many things happening at different times that it's hard. Yeah, I to, keep like, finding like, not let a me go back process, and tell right? you like, this thing really quick. Like, <laughs> right. right, but also remember that this guy from the beginning, he's yes. back now. Um, yeah, so the steps in the malting process is going to be the steeping, the germination, and the kilning. So when we're talking about steeping, this is going to be when we're soaking barley in water for two to four days. And like Rachel said, the steeping process is what's going to trick the barley into starting the growing process. And it's like when you explain this, the process of malting, like it really sounds kind of mean. <laughs> you know, yeah. like you're, you're tricking the barley and then you're like, ha, you're dead. Um, and it's kind of what you said before about yeast, where it's like yeast doesn't care about your beer. Yeah. Yeast is just trying to survive. Yeah. And we're stressing it out so we can have like it, the, yep. the results of its stress yep. um, to, to make our stress go away. Yeah, that, it's a living organism. Take that, PETA. Steeping right. so, <laughs> is is the step where barley, yeast, not fish. You don't need to bubble oxygen through it. Um, and I will, I will have to go look at specifically why, why people thought you had to do that in the first place. Yeah. Um, and then like Rachel said, the next step after we've steeped, uh, and what you, what you're doing, and I've, I've been able to do this before. So it's really cool to be able to see is, you know, checking on your steeping process to make sure that the water is being absorbed in the way that it should. And one thing for me that was like one of the first things I learned about barley that I had never really thought about is that barley doesn't soak it up, soak up water like a sponge. It soaks up water through the very bottom part of the barley kernel that was attached to the stalk. So you'll see like the water slowly getting absorbed into the barley and you want that modification is when you've reached that steeping level that you want, like that's step one. Uh, and that's also why if you have a steep, even if you have a steep grain, like your barley is not, you don't want to drown it. So you're going to have like the, the very tip of the barley is going to be like unmodified. Mm -hmm. But one way that you can test to see how modified your barley is, is to test that friability and see how many of those tips you have or how big they are. Um, and then during the process, you check your steep. Uh, there's several different ways, but one is like the rub the rub test where it's basically, it's, it's kind of like popping a pimple. Like you just grab some of it and like squeeze it between your fingers and see how easily it squeezes and how, how grainy it is, if it's still coarse. And so it's a really like just a very manual kind of old timey, like you just, you know, squeeze mm -hmm. it and see, and that can give you a good idea of how far along your steeping is and you can adjust up or down from there. So it's not like the super high tech, kind of stuff like the malting process it can be for sure but the malting process is still very much like this is how it's a lot of hands hands-on yeah. too like like just like anything really you have your machinery but you got to get some people down there to verify right exactly. uh, so it is and there's a little bit of art to it kind of like you were saying mm -hmm. feeling it i could i could say the same thing for like when we harvest yeast mm -hmm. from one batch like the first little bit comes out kind of grainy and kind of gross and you can feel the difference in dead and good yeast. And that's mm -hmm. like just a good example of yeah, yeah, I agree. experience giving you a little bit of knowledge because it can be hard to like take everything we're saying, especially on a podcast like Jen, when Jen worked at Pilot, she made this really great presentation about malt that we're looking at right now. And this is from 2018. So we have some pictures and stuff. So it can be hard to like understand everything until you really get in the malt house and mm -hmm. and take a tour man most places will you know i'm not gonna you know I, most malt houses don't have like a tap room where you can sign up for tours but if you really want to get in there you could reach out to someone and, and they're typically going to show you around if you ever wanted yeah, to i mean for sure and i was thinking about that because i'm trying to think of somebody else who may have been in more malt houses than I have. <laughs> and I'm not saying that as like, I'm the queen of the malt houses, but just when I was the executive director, if I was traveling someplace and there was a malt house there, oh, yeah. I would, I would go visit the malt house. I've been in like two dozen different so malt cool. houses, like from very, very big to yes, very, very small. very small. And they're just like breweries. They're just like kitchens and restaurants. They all do their things differently. They have their own ways, different equipment, very like, Everything's very tailored, put together. I mean, mm -hmm. we went and saw RAR when we were at we CBC did. last year, and that's a very big 
incredibly big malt house. I mean, more things going on there that I can even like comprehend in my mind, but to see the process on a big one and to see it at somewhere like Carolina malt house, which is our local one to hear to pilot. It's very different. It's very cool to see the differences. Um, right. Just like brewing. Right. So if exactly. you can get on some tours, do it. Yeah. I would definitely, if you're going to be someplace where there's a craft malt house, just reach out and see, because yeah. And I, I will always encourage people like, Hey, if you're going to be in Durham, go by Epiphany. If you're going to yeah. be in Asheville, go by Riverbend. Yes, and, exactly. Um, just reach out because like the worst they can say is no, but if you're mm -hmm. a brewer, they probably want that opportunity. So it's, yeah. it would be, I think I would be surprised if somebody said no. Oh yeah. Especially but, if you're in the brewer, they want you to buy their malt. Right. The exactly. The <laughs> and so the next step after the steep is going to be the germination. And so with germinating barley, maltsters will use either floor malting or pneumatic malting. And someplace like Riverbend, I think, is a really great place to visit because Riverbend now does both floor malting and pneumatic malting. Um, most of the time it's going to be pneumatic because we'll discuss floor malting in a minute. It's very, very hands-on. It's very labor intensive. Um, there has been some initial research suggesting that floor, there is a difference between floor malted and pneumatic, that floor malted might have a little bit more development of certain kind of flavors like for for alls. Uh, but that is very like there that was an initial finding that I don't know that that's been revisited to say like, yes, quantitatively, we've been able to repeat yeah. this and do, you know, do like a GCMS or whatever on it to verify that like floor malted has this higher level. Um, but if you're if you're a maltster who floor malts, you are definitely telling people that there's a difference. Um, <laughs> so the the germination can take up to five days. And going back to like what you were saying, Rachel, about being able to like see the yeast, maltsters can tell you like where the barley is in a germination process by the smell. And, yeah. and oh, I've, wow. I've I've been yeah. able to do that. Like if I walk in some places doing floor malting. Um, like the, after a couple of days, it starts to smell like cucumbers. It starts to smell like really like fresh and green. Uh -huh. And then it's like, oh, okay. Like this is about here. Of course there are other, you know, you, there are other things that you do, but yeah. you can tell yeah. by the yeah. smell that it's, is kind of getting to that process, which, you know, if you've I ever see baked, that. baked anything, yeah. you know that you can smell yeah. when the cookies are almost done. Right. Um, so during germination, what we're doing, like Rachel said, is this one is when we're actually tricking the bar like we've tricked the barley into start growing and now it's growing it's germinating um so what it does is it will start to grow this acrospire at the end and in the germination process the difference between floor malting and pneumatic malting is really just how you're turning that grain consistently during the germ germination process because you've got all of these little rootlets that are being grown and they're going to get tangled up really easily and germination is also like a respiratory process. So it's going to give off heat mm -hmm. and you need to be able to move that around to keep a consistent heat within your germinating barley. So you don't end up with like big clumps. Like think about if you're mashing in and you want to mm -hmm. stir your mash because you don't want just huge clumps of, of malt falling into your, into the mash because you're not, it's just not efficient. You're not going to get as much out of it. So you're doing the same thing when you're germinating is turning that malt to make sure that everything is getting, you know, there's not any hot spots. There's not any spots that are, you know, starting to like rot or get moldy mm -hmm. because they haven't been turned. You don't have big clumps of like rat king, like tangled together um, barley kernels. And that's for pneumatic malting. That's going to be some, you know, something mechanical that mm -hmm. is usually kind of looks like a corkscrew that just kind of slowly yeah. it turns slowly and then moves yeah. the barley back and forth slowly. If it's floor malting, like you are going in with a rake Some and you're, you're going through yep. <laughs> yeah, um, a rake or a snow shovel, uh, like depending on the size of the malt shirt, I've, I've seen all sorts of things um, that people will use, but most of the time it's like a rake or something that they'll just pull through to make sure that it's turned. And what kind of one of the downsides for floor malting is not only is it like very labor intensive, but it's probably less have, volume. Well, if you right? have pneumatic malting, you can just like program it. You set it and forget it. Yeah. If you're floor malting, like the barley doesn't care that it's 3 a.m. and there's a snowstorm outside. Yeah. You still have to go 
yeah, to the malt house true. and turn that barley. So it, it, it's, it's a very it's, labor intensive. And it seems to me like it would be like a less volume amount. Like if it's floor malting, you probably couldn't stack it up as high as you could in a pneumatic malt, that one that no, would go back you, and forth. Yeah. So if you have, like a lot of people have what's called a GKV, which is a germination kilning vessel, the depth of your grain bed, there's like, you only want it to be like six inches, I think is the the max. Uh-huh. So you, you would still be able to so same have that same amount. Time. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cool. So it's, Just yeah, curious. that the depth doesn't change, but yeah, if you have a bigger GKV, then you can fit more in it at yeah. that depth. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. But yeah. There's a depth that it should be to make sure that you've got that equal modification throughout. And then the last step we have is kilning. And that's going to stop the germination process. And that's where, like Rachel said, we're drying the grain. That's where we're getting the flavor and the color. And you can kiln, you know, like a, when people are talking about a base malt, they're talking about a malt that has not been kilned for very long. It's going to have a lot of fermentable sugars left in it. And it's going to have a lesser color in it. And that's going to make up, it's called base malt because it's going to make up the base of your beer is going to be responsible for, you know, probably like 80 to 100% of your fermentable sugars. If you kiln it a little longer, then you're going to get uh, more roasted flavors, more Maillard reaction. Um, but with kilning, you you need a special, another piece of equipment to do something like make a caramel malt or make a roasted malt. That's not something that you can, you can do it in like your GKV, but it's not the best Way. It's kind of like you can make a, a beer out of extract and it'll, it might be good, but it's not mm-hmm. going to be as good. Like you said, of like using the highest quality ingredients you can, like you can, you can try to make caramel malt. And I know people who have in like their GKV, but it's just not, it's not the proper equipment for it. And it's not going to be as good as if you have uh, most of the time it's a roaster. And I yeah. know several maltsters who just repurpose old coffee roasters and that's what they use to make their roasted and their caramel malt. A um, very common refrain is like throughout brewing and malting is everybody wants to blame the maltster. And yeah. it's like, no, sometimes it's your fault. And it's also Most of the, the time. Right. And one thing that I think a lot of brewers don't think about is like if you're always buying commodity malt, like let's say RAR 2 row then you it is kind of a set it and forget it like it's you don't have to worry about it you just do whatever Um, if you're spending money on craft malt you're doing that for a reason and you can't treat craft malt the same way that you treat rar to row yeah you have to make adjustments in your process and if you just try to use craft malt the exact same way you use rar to row you're is you're not going to be good like you're not going to be happy with your results but that's not the maltster's fault and so that's kind of like if you know, somebody comes into your brewery, Rachel, and is like, everything in here tastes just like Budweiser. It's like, no, it doesn't because I yeah. do all these different things to it. And yeah. like, and you would just be like, what the, get out. You know, <laughs> yeah. but it's the same thing. It's like, if you're, yeah. you're using a commodity malt and then you're trying to use a craft malt, it's, yeah. it's not going to taste the same. And you wouldn't like it if somebody came into your brewery and like looked at this you know, flight of all of these beers of different colors and everything are just like, oh yeah, this is just like Budweiser. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, uh, no. Right. So we've got our um, different types of malt. We have base malt, kilned or crystal malt, and then roasted malt. And there's um, some places that go or some malts that might, you know, go kind of between the two or like, you know, between categories, especially yeah. now like people will make like a caramelized roasted rye or something. Yeah. So there are like hybrids out there, but generally speaking, base malt, crystal malt, and roasted malt. And I should, or I'm sorry, I should say caramel malt. So we'll talk about this in a moment, but I can just talk about it right now. <laughs> Car- like all crystal malt is caramel malt, but not all caramel malt is crystal malt. Yes. So with caramel malt, if it is caramelized in a specific piece of equipment, then it's crystal malt. So all crystal malt is caramel malt. Not all caramel malt is crystal malt. It's not that big of a deal. It's just one of those things that people will be like, oh, like, I don't know. I'll just call it either one. Um, And I'm not pedantic enough that I would be like, well, actually, but 
uh, that is what the difference is. Or people have asked like, well, what's the difference between like a crystal 60 and a caramel 60 is the crystal 60 was made in a specific type of drum roaster and the caramel 60 could have been or could not have been. So those are your differences. But as we thinking through the kilning process, um, like we were talking about, you get the longer you kiln something, the higher heat is when you're going to get those Maillard reactions. That's where those sugars, if you're making a caramel malt, that's when the sugars are going to caramelize so that you are making like a mini mash inside mm -hmm. of those kernels. Um, so you're not going to expect to get a lot of fermentable sugars out of caramel malt or roasted exactly. malt. Because like the they, more you use up here, the less you get in the brewery. Yes, exactly. That's a really good way to think about it. I like that a lot. And with roasted malt is going to be to make roasted malt. And I guess we can skip to this. Um, when we're talking about caramel malt versus roasted malt, roasted malt is like when it's finished, it you reach the finished process by pyrolysis. So you're you're roasting the malt with caramel malt the finished product you get there by caramelization. So that's the difference between the two, how they're processed. So if we're talking about roasted malt, this can be finished malt or it can be unmalted grains. Like I just brewed an Irish stout a few weeks ago and used roasted barley. You raise the temperature up to around 430 Fahrenheit um, for roasted flavors, but you can also kind of manipulate that process so you can have high color with minimum flavor. And the roasting process is going to create those roasted flavors that we think about, like baked bread, coffee, chocolate, burnt, bitter, acrid, like those, all of those are roasted malt characters. And if you bite into a, a, a kernel of roasted malt, you're going to see that the inside is really me mealy. So it's really grainy. And that's because of that pyrolysis that's happened. So basically, we've just burned everything off, right? So you're using that for color and you're using that for roasted flavors. And I know we've talked about this before, but if you're making something with roasted malt, like that might be at most like 10%. Do you think like 10, 15%? That just seems really high. Like no. I, Irish style, I've got 1.8% roasted malt. Now we're, we actually did Irish coffee cream stout is the goal here. So I do have some carafa at it, mm. which... I might have added a little bit more roasted barley if I did not have that carafa. Right. So like 3%. Right. So yeah, see, I was thinking like at most 5%, but then I knew yeah, somebody out there maybe. was going to be like, I use 15%. No, but yeah, it's normally you do not need a lot for yeah. those kinds of flavors. And like I have some see. roasted grains for a tamave that I'll be brewing. And like with the carafa three, I think I asked for like, 0.33 ounces or something like enough that she was like, am I reading this right? And I was like, yeah, that's like, <laughs> I go, I, I do my recipes by percentage, not, not by weight. So yeah, like I only need, but I only need a little bitty bit of that. And it's going to add so much color and flavor. Um, For my check dark lager, I didn't do any roasted malt, but I did 5.8% of Carafa three. Yeah. I don't know why I told you that just to compare. <laughs> <laughs> well, that is a roasted malt. True, but I meant barley. Sorry, I meant. Oh, got it, got it, got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, uh, quick thing that I think we should clarify, maybe mostly to me, but <laughs> okay, we're talking about roasted malt, typically finished malt or unmalted grains. Mm -hmm. So is that when you're saying typically finished malt, do you mean malted barley? Yes, and so that's a very good. I meant to point that out. So with roasting you go through steeping, germinating, kilning, and then roasting. So you take the finished malt and roast that, or you take the raw barley or, you know, or whatever and roast that, but you've So gone... it doesn't have to go through germination. It can, or it doesn't have to. It doesn't have to. So Both, you can have like I mean, roasted yeah. barley hasn't okay. gone through that, but you're taking the raw barley or you're taking the finished malt. There is no in-between. And that, no, I, I think know. it's easier to contextualize that if we also talk about caramel malt. Yeah, because that's yeah. my next question um, on here. It just says made from green malt. When you say green malt, does that mean finished, like germinated malt, like freshly germinated malt? Yes. Yes. Yeah, so okay. this, yeah, this is a, um, yeah. So it's a caramel malt is made from green malt. So it is fully modified barley that's taken straight from the germination bed. You skip this kilning stuff. Kilning. Because you want all of those roaster. sugars, right? You're trying to caramelize those sugars. So the temperature is raised to enzyme conversion temperatures for 
caramel malt. So you just, from the, the germinating barley, you take that and that goes into the roaster. Like I said, it skips the kiln mm -hmm. and you're effectively making that mini mash inside the kernel. So you're caramelizing all of those sugars. And another way to think of it is like stewing it. You know, you're taking this germinated barley and it's still very wet. It hasn't been dried out. Mm -hmm. And so then you're, you're just heating that up with all that moisture inside and that's what's caramelizing your sugars. So that's going to create flavors like caramel, raisin, dark fruit, burnt sugar. And if you bite into a caramel malt kernel, you'll see that the inside is glassy and that's due to the caramelization that we've done. So that's more of like, you're taking something really wet and caramelizing it as opposed to roasting where you it's gone through the kilning step where you've gotten to the moisture level and everything that you want and then you're roasting it. So that's and, those and if it's roasted in a drum roaster, then it could be caramel or it could be crystal. If it's caramelized, if it's a caramel malt that was caramelized in a drum roaster, then it is a crystal malt. And then if it's in a kiln, it's in a caramel. Yeah. Well, if it's in any kind of other roaster. Okay. And then yeah. just to double check, because I have ADD, unmalted grain means raw, like from the field into mm -hmm. the roaster. Okay. Yep. Yeah. And that does not mean green malt, which all kind of sounds like it couldn't be green malt. Yes. No, it's like raw. Yeah. Green, green finished. finished. Yeah. I'm glad or we had this conversation. I feel yeah. like this cleared this up for a lot of people. Good. Listen, I will talk I to you about malt all fucking day. When I tell you that I love it, it I'm literally getting it tattooed on my body. But I mean, it can be confusing when you're just starting out and you just throw words around like finished malt, green malt, unmalted, you know, roasted yes. crystal caramel. Right. And I appreciate. Uh, yeah. See, this is what break we talk about. This like is going why through the process of asking the questions. ABCs. Yes. All thanks. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. So I think that's a pretty good place yes. probably to stop for our, you know, our explanation of how, you know, malt gets to be malted. And I will also say that things like malted wheat, malted rye, caramel rye, you know, oh, roasted wheat, all of those, it's the same process. Yes. So you'll use, and the other thing that I think is important to point out is like, I can take one barley variety. So let's say I can take Violetta and I can make base malt, caramel malt and roasted malt like the variety doesn't yes. really the variety matters in in different ways but not really for its performance yeah the malter isn't getting the trucks in of barley and saying this is my you know caramel right. truck this is that's not happening right. it's like right. we take it all we turn it to different flavors right and most maltsters or most craft maltsters will use you know something local so like if you're mm -hmm. in the southeast you're using violetta or avalon like there's only certain varieties that are going to grow well so most maltsters will use that mm -hmm. and the the same like if you're out west like there's just varieties that do well out there but you can make the same product you're using the same variety to make all of the products and that's that's definitely something um that's another one of those things that when i've talked to people about malt before they've been like okay so wait what variety is used for what? And it's like, you use the same, like the, once you have your barley, that barley can be anything you want it to be. And mm -hmm. you just adjust by variety for things like how long you might have to steep or how long you might have to germinate. Um, that can be variety dependent. So then the other thing that is important, if you're talking about your distinction between like craft malt and commodity malt, they're both fine. Like they both have their places. But with commodity malt, since they grow so much barley, most of that is they can blend it together to make a cohesive product. And that's usually with like a craft maltster, you're going to get like one, one variety, one, you know, because they're not making enough scale to be able to blend yeah, it together. Exactly. And if you think that the same way about like, if you go to Budweiser, right, they usually do high gravity brewing. So they're kind of just making like a concentrate and then they can water it down and make it cohesive. But like at pilot, you're mm -hmm. doing everything on a much smaller scale. Uh, so you're not going to do that. You're not going to be like, oh, well, we'll brew, you know, six different batches of the same beer and just blend it together. Yeah. Because that's not really what your goal is as a craft brewer. And that's not what your goal is as a craft maltster. Yeah. It's not, you know, you might have a little bit of variety in each batch that you brew, but it's still going to be within your specs or not each batch that you brew, but each batch that you mauled 
but it will still be within the specs. And we'll talk about uh, malt certificates of analysis in another episode. Uh, but we're, first, we wanted to walk you through, like, you know what? We're going field to glass. And that's yeah. such a cliched thing, but that's what we're doing. So we've left the field, and now we're finishing up at the malt house. So in our next episode, we will talk about milling and mashing, which is the presentation that we gave at HomebrewCon this past year in Pittsburgh. I mean, to be honest, we could probably keep talking to you about it, but I listen, I could talk forever. We could be, you would stop (laughs) listening to us at some point. (laughs) Right. You'd be like, oh, Jen's talking about mothing. And (laughs) so, yes, thank you everyone for listening. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at falsebottomgirls. You can email us falsebottomgirls at gmail.com. You can visit our website, falsebottomgirls.com. Everything in modification. Oh my God. That took me a second, but that was good. This has been False Bottom Girls, and we make the Bruin world go round. <laughs>